Welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivett Karnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickens. This week, we discuss the continued climate diplomacy in the Far East. We talk about the American Legislative Exchange Council and their efforts to prevent progress on climate change. And we speak about the French rule to end short flights. Plus, we speak to Jojo Meta, co-founder and executive director of the Stop Ecocide Foundation. And we have music from Eliza Shaddad. Thanks for being here. So guys, let's get the difficult bit out of the way before we start off. I think that arguably the episode last week was better for my absence. I felt very sad listening to it. You guys did a great job. It's okay, Tom. You're welcome to be back. You're you're very well welcome to be back. I do back. sound a bit needy, don't I, if I say Yes, yes, it's okay. Tom. I can lavish praise on you, Tom. <laughs> Essentially, I heard myself sort of have this sort of kind of nervous, kind of antsy thing going on, which I really don't like when people talk on the radio. And 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 when you're here, like I don't have it. So actually, I recognised last week that I need you exactly. <laughs> a nice exactly. calm, calm tone. Excellent. All right. So so it's been a busy week. Let's dive in. What have you guys got? Well, I'm actually pretty excited that uh, John Kerry is going to China and to Korea. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm particularly excited because he's doing it before the uh, Biden summit on April 22 and 23. What does that mean in geopolitics? They are trying to nudge both Korea and China to come forward with something interesting beyond what is already in on the table. So that's actually pretty exciting. Let's see what happens there. But let's remember that Kerry has many friends in China from his previous engagement, as well as in Korea. So the best person to go uh, and try to nudge both of those governments that are absolutely key to increased overall ambition now and obviously at COP26. Wow. So do you think, I mean, obviously none of us have crystal ball, we don't have insights into the geopolitics, but it doesn't feel like that long ago that China came out with their net zero 2060 target. Do you think that there's a chance wait, that we're going to... Wait, gonna... wait, 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 net zero before, before 2060. Before. Sorry, sorry. It's the before. He's getting on a plane to define the before. before. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, so do you feel like we might see that sharpened? Well, I'm sure that is at least part of his uh, intent there. It's define before. Because it's net zero emissions before 2060 and peaking emissions before 2030. So here we are. China government, please define before. Unless Paul can do it for you. He's leaving on a jet plane to help China define before. Now, you have to be of a certain age to know that song that I just crucified. Mm. Oh, John Denver. Uh, but, John but Denver, even if you don't Clay. have... Th- yeah. Oh, Clay. And, oh, thank you, Clay. John Denver, thank you. You're very welcome. I, honestly, I'm so close to singing the rest of it. We have to stop. All right. So do we think, I mean, just before we move on from that topic, Christiana, do you think, I mean, I'm fascinated. We're now a week out from this summit that Biden is hosting. I'm hearing lots of rumours about what's being planned. There's going to be obviously heads of state and a range of others. Some activists are going to be there. But what I haven't heard, and I expected to have heard at least some rumours of by this time, is other countries apart from the US We know the US is going to come out with its NDC before Earth Day, but other countries that are going to step up their ambition at that summit as well. Presumably, that is one of the major measures of success. If no other countries step up their ambition at that summit, that's bad news, right? Well, it is because, um, well, obviously the US has to. There's no two ways about that one. The US has to. Um, but of course, their preference would be to uh, be leaders with followers and have others inspired to do the same. So that, as I said, I don't, uh, I, I, I don't doubt that that is the motivation for Kerry all of a sudden jumping on a plane scarcely uh, 10 days or 12 days before the summit. And fascinating that he's doing that in the context of the recent incredibly antagonistic meeting between Antony Blinken, the Secretary of State, and his Chinese counterpart, where, I don't know if you saw the exchanges there, it was just vitriolic, where they were sort of throwing barbs back and forth about Uyghurs and about Taiwan and, and a whole range of other different issues, that John Kerry has to go into that and find a way to negotiate progress on climate change is a fascinating challenge. 
Well, let's remember that the U.S. and China managed to uh, ring fence climate as a very positive relationship mm. before Paris, yeah. despite the fact that they were having true uh, deep differences on all other issues. So um, remains to be seen. Can they ring fence climate again? Paul? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure two super smart big countries, they may have disputes about this in 2021 and that in 2022 and that in 2025, but they both understand 2050 has a meaning and they both understand 2100 has a meeting and China can look back 5,000 years of recorded history. Then neither of them going to muck about about the big game. All right. I hope and believe. From your lips to... Uh... I'm not sure of God's ears, but certainly China and U.S. government ears. <laughs> Paul has remarkable influence in places we can only guess. So, Paul, what do you got? Well, I was a little bit worried about things in the United States, domestic things. Um, Grist have reported the American Legislative Exchange Council have been looking at trying to undermine uh, the Biden administration's um, rules uh, you know on, on you know and, and executive orders to combat greenhouse gas emissions and i mean i was just looking at this whole debate and they were sort of saying like the republicans want this and i'm like i just i don't know if there really are any republicans you know i think what we have is business trading you know we've got to you've heard me say this before but i've got a i've got a i've got a practical twist on it but i just like there's a big part of me is like just forget government you know companies control government they can spend any amount of money to control government you have to control the companies. So this this thing with Alec is really then the American Legislative Exchange Council is a lot of business money trying to stop greenhouse gas emissions regulations. And what I wanted to say to listeners is, do you know what? Actually, it's not maybe so difficult to control companies. They have things like brands, which they will go to incredible lengths to protect. Um, they have investors who are always looking for information about what's good or bad about the companies that they invest in. So they're probably much more sensitive to uh, focused attention than you might realize. But I think that people have to do the digging. They have to find out which companies are funding uh, efforts to undermine the Biden administration's greenhouse gas uh, actions. And then they need to use wit and wisdom. You know, one of my favorite comedians is John Oliver, who produces a very funny show last week tonight on TV uh, in the US. Uh, but he, he entertains you with the stories of what's wrong. And that's how you get viral forces, which I think can really help... Um, focus people's attention on on righting these wrongs. But just looking at the government may not be the whole story. You need to look at kind of who's influencing and controlling the government with crazy amounts of money. But I mean, this whole Alex stuff is, I mean, I, I, I agree with you, but it's just outrageous, isn't it? They've been doing this for years. I remember looking into this sort of several years ago when I was still working with you, Paul, at CDP, and we were looking at lobbying efforts. And Alec, even then, were the, one of the worst perpetrators. And if I remember rightly, what they would do is they would draft anti-renewable energy laws and then they would go around with those drafts and present them to busy state legislators across the US and say hey here's a pre-written law we've just prepared it for you You can just introduce it into legislation and it was an incredibly effective tactic I mean the fact that they're still going on and getting away with that when there have been many corporations have actually pulled out of Alec in the intervening kind of 10 years haven't they it's true but they're still up to this I mean do you think they still are able to have an impact Look, lots of corporations have pulled out of Alec, but I mean, this has also happened at the uh, US Chamber of Commerce. You know, I, yeah. I have a, a friend who has told me that essentially, you know, uh, politicians are funded depending upon the degree to which they support bills or, or they support these kind of regulations. Yeah. And I mean, the people in the Climate Change Committee, you know, you haven't got all the, you know, jolly tech companies and FMCG companies in the climate change group. It's just kind of oil and gas or, or you know, coal or whatever else. So the point being, you know, industry lobbies in an extremely focused way. It funds politicians who need that industry money to get reelected. And until we as a society get together and stop that money corrupting our politics, you know, the, the craziest thing I've ever heard is was it, economists talk about a market failure. It's not a market failure. It's a allowing children to play with young children to play with very dangerous things, unsupervised failure. That's what it is. <laughs> And, and Paul, so what is the first step in that? Is the first step transparency 
on funding? Who are they getting their funding from? Yeah, I think that's probably exactly right. I mean, it's unbelievably crazy. Um, I've mentioned it before multiple times. Lots of people know it. In 2010, the US Supreme Court said it's absolutely vital and legal for corporations to spend any amount of money deranging the political process and there's no supervision. And that was called the Citizens United ruling. You can look it up. It's there. President Obama at the time just couldn't believe this disaster that had befallen the US nation. But I mean, yeah, basically, currently there's no way to stop corporations pouring money into politics. So what we have to do is we have to highlight which corporations are funding who and get to the bottom of it. And it's a lot of work, but it's worth it. It's definitely worth it. And one more thing I just say, because I'm on a roll. <laughs> you know, like if somebody, if some company produces something, Fine, you know, I, I, I will admit that I like Diet Coke. It's, it's my, one of my favorite drinks. I buy Diet Coke. Now, if a company makes me a tin of Diet Coke or, or 100 tins a year or 1,000 tins a year, it's fine. It's a can, isn't it? Yes, it's a can. That's well put. Um, <laughs> made of recyclable aluminum uh, for our US listeners. Um, aluminium in the UK, if you're over and you don't understand what people are talking about. But the key point of my story is if a company sells like billions or tens of billions or hundreds of billions of, of cans of Diet Coke, it doesn't, doesn't matter. But if that company has got just crazy amounts of money, like little individual citizens can't imagine how much money a really big company has got, if they then spend that money without limitation to subvert the political process, we've lost our politics. And unfortunately, that's kind of where we are at the moment. So we've got to get to the bottom of that money, as Christiana so wisely advises. Well, we've spoken several times on, on this podcast about um, how... Sadly, we have companies that have taken on climate targets that are decarbonizing their products, their services, they're joining coalitions that are doing the same, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, in, with the front foot. And with the back foot, either they haven't noticed or, uh, or they're intentionally with the back foot pouring money into these lobbying mm -hmm. associations. We've talked about this quite a bit. And, uh, you know, when when we've ha asked CEOs about this on the podcast, their immediate reaction is, no, we're no longer doing that. So that tells us that transparency in that kind of funding actually leads to behavior change. So transparency yeah. is definitely the first step. You can't prohibit them from doing that, but they know that it's not very popular with their uh, customers and their clients and certainly not with young people. And therefore, they just might change their behavior. And I mean, you can't really get away with that kind of duplicity for long in a way, right? If you think about the court of public opinion, the fact they need to encourage young minds to participate. So hopefully, as that becomes well known, legislation or regulation will be the last straw that is needed, right? Um, right because it will solve itself, but that might be a bit Pollyanna-ish. Uh, we've got to move on, but Paul, what do you think about that? <laughs> well, Clay's just reminded us of Mitch McConnell's comment about uh, companies kind of uh, pulling out of Georgia or, or punishing Georgia um, for... Uh, you, you know, supporting this kind of voting regulation change, which appeared to be kind of designed to discourage certain people from voting. Um, and Mitch McConnell said, yeah, you know, corporations should stay out of politics. But I mean, <laughs> that's the biggest joke I've ever heard in the world. Because if you really, uh, if, you know, if, if Mitch McConnell accepts, and I think he would, you know, he's a, he's a kind of logical grown-up person. If he's listening, Mitch, would you admit corporations are putting unlimited money into politics? But, but he actually said... He said, I'm not talking about political contributions in the same interview. Okay, well, that, is, that shows <laughs> a very high degree of this holding two completely opposing things at the same time. It's basically insane to make those two statements. And we've got to have a slightly more sophisticated politics where you call it out. It's a cheap shot to say, oh, Democrats believe differently to Republicans. This is money corrupting things. It's not a political fight between two parties. Yeah. So, so I wanted to bring an example of where a government has done something, um, I think, I, and we'll discuss it, but maybe it is impressive and it's certainly surprising and, and I, for one, wasn't anticipating it. So uh, uh, listeners may have seen this, but um, we're recording this podcast on Tuesday and just a few days ago on Saturday, French lawmakers voted 
to abolish domestic flights on routes that can be covered by train in under two and a half hours. The government, of course, is seeking to lower emissions even as the travel industry comes back from the global pandemic. This is part of a broader climate bill to cut French carbon emissions 40% by 2030 from 1990 levels. Um, What's interesting is a couple of things. One is the vote came just days after uh, France said that it would contribute 4 billion euros to recapitalizing Air France, massively increasing its stake in the airline and becoming its largest shareholder, I understand. Um, And also that this law actually originated in a really interesting process, part of a citizens' climate forum that was established by Macron to shape climate policy. They had actually called for the scrapping of flights on routes where the train journey is less than four hours, What's come through is two and a half. But I mean, you know, and and we can criticize that. We can say it should have gone further. But fascinating that this has, well, it hasn't happened yet. It's passed one chamber. It's got to go through the other chamber and then to the executive in order to be made into a law. But a country has said you cannot take short haul flights. You have to go by train. Once we have that on the books, other countries might follow suit. Mm. We might see that, you know, the time period expands, etc. So I'm very curious to know, what do you two think about this development? So I'm going to go first because Paul loves trains and he will never stop talking about it. <laughs> so I want to get my five cents in. Um, it just makes extraordinary sense, right? Uh, A, from an emissions perspective, but also just think of the practicality of this. By the time you get yourself to an airport and check in and do security and wait for the flight to take off uh, and arrive and then go through whatever you have to uh, go through on the other side, you're definitely down two and a half hours, if not more. So, and, and, and you probably arrive anywhere except the center of the city where you're going. So just from a practicality point of view, this just makes so much sense in addition to the greenhouse emissions. And that's what I like about it because honestly, the policies will not be uh, very popular if the only reason is a greenhouse gas reduction argument. But if the greenhouse gas reduction argument is basically comes alongside other benefits, direct benefits to the user, then we have actually very strong policies that will probably have quite a bit of uptake. Oh, it's absolutely brilliant. Laws we like. Laws we like. Please, listeners, go and get this law passed in your country because it's brilliant. Christiana has pointed out it makes perfect sense. I love electric trains. My grandpa wrote a book called Electric Trains in 1927. Thank you, grandpa. Really? But but you'll never guess what the book was about. But here's the thing, right? (laughs) This law is just so simple. The French got it through perhaps because the government happens to own a majority of the airline might make it easier to push the law through. But I mean, come along, friends. You know, we we, we tax things we don't like. It's very simple, right? And we we regulate things we don't like. You know, you can't go 200 miles an hour on the, on the, on the, on the, on the motorway because you're, you're going to smash another car on the freeway and, you know, no good. So just copy this law around the world and what's to not like? And And, and you know, let's have more laws we like. And do we think, I mean, there's quite a bit of hand-wringing in France to say, actually, and I, I don't have the, the, the exact numbers here, but if it had been a four-hour ban, you know, if the trip had to be less than four hours in order to be banned, um, for the flight, the equivalent flight to be banned, then it would have had a real impact on a much larger number of trips in France and more of a CO2 impact. I'm split on that. I can see that would have been better from a climate perspective, but in a way, it almost feels to me the important thing here is the principle and maybe it can get nibbled up over time. What do you think? Yeah, dude. Yeah. We're opening the door. We're pushing open the door. You know, it starts off, what was it, um, four hours, then it gets down to maybe two and a half hours. And, you know- Starts at two and a half, goes up to four. I got that completely wrong, Tom, and I was I was in my, using my serious voice, and it's kind of awkward. But uh, my point being, yeah, you get those laws in place, they start off, and then we just ratchet them up, ratchet them up, ratchet them up. It's like banning smoking in restaurants or on the underground or something. It's a first step, but, you, you know, you move on, you move on, you move on. It's beautiful. You agree, Christiana? Yep. Have to start where you are and then move it up. Start where you are. Momentum is the key to transformation. Right. Anything else anyone wants to say before we move to our very exciting guest? Well, I can't resist one other tiny little comment. Go on, Paul. Um, And it relates to actually the UK government has been criticised for withdrawing a scheme involved in insulating properties and 
uh, it, it turns out that I'm involved in a small installation company. Um, and we I, I've act- heard rumours that you moonlight as a double glazing salesman. Is that true? I do sell double glazing, actually, or at least my friends do, in a company called Mitchell & Dickinson. It bears my name. Uh, we insulate period properties. Shameless advertising. I owe the podcast some money. But the point of my story is I spoke to the wonderful woman who runs it, Simone, and she said the problem with the government scheme, and this is really the, the point I wanted to make to listeners, the problem with the government scheme is it wasn't actually, in, in her words, it was too bureaucratic but not enough care and it was probably, I, mean, I actually didn't know if it was outsourced, but, you know, there weren't people with enough knowledge of the scheme uh, and the administrative level was not really with sufficient competence. And so, uh, you know, it, it, some people were getting certificates who shouldn't have got them and other people were finding it impossible. So, the, and, then, and then the government withdrew the scheme. Um, I even got a letter in the, in the Financial Times because the government announced the scheme three months before they introduced it, so all our sales dropped to nothing. Okay, so the lessons here for governments around the world and people who want these schemes, because we do need government schemes to insulate our homes, are plan them before you announce them, make sure you've got high-quality administration uh, and people who with knowledge and care, and then it'll be successful. Thank you. End of speech. Mitchell and Dickinson sounds like a sort of high-end lawyer, but it's actually insulation and double glazing. Is that correct? Well, you don't want to start me on this perspective. Oh, no, 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 no. We definitely don't want to go down that rabbit hole. Moving on, moving on. Oh, no. Moving on. Right. So we have a really exciting interview for you today. I think everybody's going to really enjoy it. Now, you may not have heard of Jojo Meta before today, uh, but you will be certainly looking her up after you've heard this interview. She co-founded Stop Ecoside in 2017 with the late Polly Higgins after many years spent as an activist, a grassroots environmental campaigner. After Polly very sadly passed away in 2016, Jojo has continued that work and is now working to secure a legal definition of ecocide, which she hopes will be adopted as a fifth crime in the Roman statute of the International Criminal Court. She's chair of the charitable Stop Ecocide Foundation, convener of the independent expert panel for the legal definition of ecocide, chaired by Philippe Sands, QC, and Dior Fulso. Jojo has overseen the growth of the movement with teams now in 15 countries across continents, websites in nine languages, coordinates between legal departments, diplomatic traction, and a range of other different issues. It's a really interesting concept, ecocide. You're about to learn about it if you haven't heard about it before. Uh, now, now we, we we talk a lot in this podcast about how fabulous it is to be in Costa Rica. Um, obviously, wonderful country, a very interesting and, and abundant fauna, along with everything else. Complex Christiana, country in some complex regards. Com- yeah, complex. absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. who knows what's going to happen? You could be giving an interview, and then, for example, a white-faced capuchin monkey could jump down and try and steal your microphone. That happens in this interview. Try and spot it. <laughs> Look out for it. Hope you enjoy this conversation, and we will be back afterwards with more comment. Jojo, what a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much for coming on with us on uh, Outrage and Optimism. Jojo, you have devoted a serious chunk of your professional life to Ecoside, but very possibly our listeners don't even know what it is. So can we start at the very beginning? Can you tell us the story behind Ecoside, who first coined the term, where does it come from, and, and, and why have you devoted so much of your energy, time, and passion to this? Well, this story begins in 1970 when a biologist called Arthur Goldston, who helped develop um, a defoliant chemical called Agent Orange um, that was used in the Vietnam War, decided that he was horrified by what had been done with it. And he coined the term ecocide to describe the devastation that was created by that chemical weapon. Um, It was then uh, first used on the international stage at the first UN Environment Conference in Stockholm in 1972. And it was the leader Olaf Palmer from Sweden who used the term ecocide to describe destruction of the natural environment and who called for the international community to look at that as a term and to address it. Um, And over the subsequent decades, there was a focus kind of behind the scenes politically and legally almost constantly on addressing uh, ecosystem destruction, Um, but it never quite came to the fore politically until relatively recently. 
when it was resurrected by the woman who I worked very closely with, my dear friend, Polly Higgins. And tell us Polly's story shortly, because that's also a story. Absolutely. So Polly was um, embarking on a lucrative courtroom career as a barrister herself. I mean, she had a kind of epiphany moment looking out from the Royal Courts of Justice in London and realising that it wasn't just her clients that needed a good lawyer, but it was the earth itself. Um, And she asked herself a single simple question, how do we create a legal duty of care for the earth? And that set her on a quest that was to take her the rest of her life. Um, Now, Polly is no longer with us. She died two years ago. But her quest took her through, firstly, through looking at the rights of nature. Um, And there's now quite a global movement to support rights of nature and the idea of giving legal personhood to uh, natural to parts of the natural world, forests, rivers, mountains, and so on. Um, But what she realized in the course of her research was that rights is only one side of the story. The other side, the side of responsibility that that is kind of the the complement to that is provided by criminal law. So just as our basic right is a right to life as humans, a, a basic human right is the right to life. But what protects that right is the fact that killing us, killing each other, is a crime. So murder is a crime, and that protects our right to life. And so she then realized that criminal law is actually the protective side of law. And when she started investigating, she found that when the International Criminal Court first came into existence and the draft of the Rome Statute, which governs that court, was being discussed, there was originally a clause in that draft to cover serious environmental destruction and that it never made the final cut. And the the three crimes that came into existence with the International Criminal Court and the Rome Statute were genocide. Hey, get out of here. This is this huge (laughs) monkey again. Go, go. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Coming at me from my... Christiana, the monkey has as much right to life as you do. Why are you perpetrating in this low-level ecocide? Exactly. I am not not taking his his or her right of life away. I am only protecting my microphone, okay? That's all. Uh, Microphone, microphone (laughs) side. Okay, fair enough. Sorry, back to normal. Sorry, Jojo. No. Sorry. (laughs) Please, not at all. (laughs) So, yes, um, the the crimes that came into existence in the Rome Statute in 1998 um, and with the beginnings of the International Criminal Court or the ICC, which which, uh, came into existence in 2002, were genocide, crimes against humanity and war crimes. And so what Polly dedicated the rest of her life to was effectively what she saw as restoring the missing crime to the Rome Statute, in other words, to international criminal law. And... That's what she spent the rest of her life doing. And I joined her for the last four and a half years of that life. And since she passed away, um, I've been kind of heading up this campaign that is now becoming a really quite a broad global movement. There's been a huge um, acceleration in interest in this whole concept. And part of that acceleration, I'll come back to the ICC because I really want to understand that choice uh, to go through the ICC. But part of that acceleration, Jojo, is this panel that is now um, on on its way to collectively define ecocide. And they are scheduled to come up with a collective definition by June of this year. Is that correct? That's absolutely right. So in November of last year, our foundation, the Stop Ecoside Foundation, convened a panel of top international criminal lawyers and environmental lawyers from all around the world um, to work on drafting a robust clear and credible legal definition of ecocide. There have been working definitions in the past. Uh, Polly Higgins created one in 2010, which she used over the, the years that she was working, and there have been others. But the difference on this occasion is that this was prompted by a political request. So from members of parliament in Sweden, members of parliament from the ruling parties approached us and said, this is obviously your area of expertise. Would you be able to convene or commission or 
bring together a definition, a legal definition that could actively be considered by states for potential proposal to amend the Rome Statute. And on the basis of that request, we were able to convene some really top legal talent, including Philippe Sands QC and Dior Falso from Senegal, a jurist and legal scholar, and those two are now chairing that panel. And that panel is in the middle of its work and it's due to report at the beginning of June, as you say. So, um, Giorgio, sitting at the feet of these um, eminent uh, lawyers and judges, explain to help me understand two things that I don't understand. My first question is, am I right in understanding that the ICC can actually only charge an individual, not a state, not a government? And so doesn't that make it even more difficult, A, to have to define ecocide and then to put together charges against an individual who may be pretty well protected, and Paul would talk to us about that, because the ICC, different to the International Court of Justice, that could find a state guilty, mm -hmm. um, the ICC can only find an individual guilty. So that's my first question. And the second question, and the reason why I ask you both is because I think they are interrelated. The second question is, um, genocide is definitely a crime that is accepted by everyone and, uh, and often charged um, in the ICC, but it doesn't stop genocide as we see in Myanmar and Tigray, Ethiopia today. So uh, how, how do you see this, the choice of going through the ICC, how do you see it progressing on to finding individuals that can be charged? And how does that charge of individuals act as a deterrent, although certainly not a guarantee, as we see in Myanmar and Ethiopia for genocide issues? How does it act as a powerful deterrent, because I think that's what you're trying to do, a powerful deterrent uh, of those who would commit ecocide? So yeah, those are great questions. And I think it's it comes back to the particular route that we pursue at the ICC having, it's kind of, there are kind of three reasons behind it. Um, well, there are probably several, but there are three key ones. Um, one reason for approaching the ICC um, is that it's the only global mechanism that directly accesses the criminal justice systems of all of its member states. So if you make something a crime at the ICC, any member state that ratifies it has to include it in its own domestic legislation. So it's not a separate, it doesn't require a separate court like the, the European Court of Human Rights. It's not a separate treaty. Effectively, you add something to the Rome Statute, you're actually directly accessing the criminal justice systems that already exist. Uh -huh. So that's... Okay. So so mm -hmm. that that's what so so in order in in response to your first question, yes, it's it is geared to individuals, um, but of course the um, national criminal justice systems are also geared to individuals. And what we're looking for with uh, criminalising ecocide or mass damage and destruction of ecosystems, um, broadly broadly defined, um, is the key decision makers. So as with genocide, you're not aiming at. Uh, you know, end users, citizens, consumers, what you're aiming at, um, you, you, just like you wouldn't aim for the foot soldiers with genocide, you're aiming for the controlling minds. And the same would go for ecocide. So you'd be looking for key decision makers. Those could potentially be CEOs or government ministers and so on. So you are looking for individuals. And that is precisely one of the things that is important in creating a deterrent. I mean, as you'll know, Christiana, there are so many already climate litigation cases going on around the world. There are well over 1,500 now, I believe, in process around the world. And those are very Correct. important in terms of um, creating evidence, in terms of naming and shaming, um, in terms of um, sort of creating a, a, a moral effect in, in, in the public eye and so on. Um, but and, and also creating some kind of compensation and justice of victims in some cases. But what those climate litigation cases don't do is actually change corporate practice. Whereas a CEO is going to think very carefully before engaging in an activity that might constitute an international crime. Because, I mean, perhaps even unlike a war criminal, a CEO care, is going to care very deeply about how they're perceived because their, their success of their business and their share price depend very directly on it. So that's that's um, that is a very key aspect in regard to your first question. Um, and and in, in regard to your second question um, about genocide, yes, it, it has not completely prevented genocide, having genocide as an international crime. But in the same way, you know, um, 
people still commit murder, but we wouldn't dream of saying murder shouldn't be a crime. Yep. Effectively, yeah, we yeah. do still have a situation where there is, there is a, there's a missing normative, if you like. There's a missing normative. Um, and, and actually, that's one of the other key reasons for uh, aiming for an international crime, because it creates um, a kind of moral sense um, from the highest level that it's wrong to seriously destroy ecosystems. Hmm. Well, let, let me uh, jump in with a question like, well, a little little story leading to a question. I remember being really kind of embarrassed once because I asked a super smart lawyer, I said, what's the, what's the legal definition of the public interest? And they looked at me and said, well, there isn't one. And I was like, of course. <laughs> so the thing is, I then I was looking into lead in petrol and asbestos. And what I discovered was the courts always sort of say, it's fine, it's fine, it's legal, it's legal, until there's thousands of us in the streets, right? And then the courts suddenly say, no, that's not legal anymore, right? So the courts are kind of there, they're like a pressure valve to stop a civil war. And so I guess my, 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 my question to you is, to what degree do you think we're kind of making up norms of society by combining legal arguments with public demonstrations such that we create a new atmosphere about what is and what is not acceptable, such that even before laws are produced, they can discourage people or allow people to see the unacceptability of their behavior. Is that part of it? That's a very big part of it. And I'm really glad you brought that up because I think one of the things that's one of the key factors behind the acceleration of this movement to criminalise ecocide has been the climate mobilisation um, of get the, the people coming onto the streets, whether that's Extinction Rebellion or whether it's Greta Thunberg inspiring the school strikes, those um, those grassroots movements and those disruptions at the street level have absolutely been key for us because what they've done is they've created a level of disruption and polarisation that's opened up a window of conversation in the media and in political life, which has meant that what we've ultimately been saying for years um, is now finally being heard. And so there is a very direct correlation between those two things. And actually, um, our, you know, our foundation kind of sits in an interesting position in that way, because we're obviously deeply involved in the legal developments at the moment, but also with the political traction and, of course, with the public narrative as well. And what we're finding is that actually those different areas do influence each other quite strongly. Mm. The, the, the logic of the Paris Agreement has been constructed on the basis of shared benefit, Right. And it was constructed like that because, in part, because previous agreements like the Kyoto Protocol, you know, there were these punitive measures if you didn't meet your targets. What happened in reality is countries just pulled out of the agreement the day before they weren't going to meet them. And they were never able to be kind of implemented in the way that people envisaged that they would be when the protocol was developed. So as a result, Paris was constructed differently with a series of self-determined measures with the idea that this would create kind of a race to the top of more technology, more momentum, etc. Now, you've been very critical of the Paris Agreement and you've said it's failing because the next round of NDCs is not in line with where we need we need to get to. And that's that's a fact, right? And it remains to be seen whether those NDCs will be strengthened sufficiently over time to get us to where we need to. But we're in a very perilous place. So obviously the logic of ecocide is, is, is the opposite end of the sort of philosophical debate, right? And I'm just wondering how you see those two things fit together because in part, the Paris Agreement, the diplomacy that was behind that was constructed because of this principle of equity, that mm. the history of climate change is not fair, that some countries have done more to cause it than others. How would ecocide interact with that existing process? And how would it be a tool that had sufficient nuance to take account for some of that history? I think that's a brilliant question. And I think this is um, a kind of a hand in hand kind of approach in a way that, that we see this ha is how we see this working, because the Paris Agreement is obviously it's hugely important in the sense that um, it, it's the first time that, you know, so much of the world has committed to such an agreement that, you know, if we do too much of A, it leads to B. You know, so I mean, just even from a legal perspective, that's creating prior knowledge in the sense mm. that, you know, nobody can then say, oh, well, I didn't know that, you know, A was going to lead to B. Um, but at the same time, as you say, with the latest report, the NDC synthesis report, you know, we're looking at um, the, the current commitments simply not 
being adequate, simply not actually reaching those targets. And what the way that we see ecocide law in relation to that is almost like a kind of a guardrail, like in introducing a kind of a, a, a an enforceable legal parameter for the worst excesses of mm. environmentally destructive activity, um, so that we start to create a kind of a steer or a course correction. Because what we find it quite difficult to imagine how those, you know, the ambitions that are really needed in regard to the Paris Agreement and in regard to the Sustainable Development Goals, you know, how those are going to be materialised just out of goodwill. Um, you know, the, 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 the idea with Ecoside is to create almost a kind of a safety barrier that kind of says this far and no further, that actually starts to steer business in the right direction and corporate practice. And I think that also um, we, we have to look at the fact that it will take some time to put this law in place. And that's actually very important. It shouldn't mm. be done overnight. It can't be done overnight. It would create chaos. But if there's a transition period or a period that it takes where we can see that coming and government and the corporate sector can see it coming over the horizon, what this then transforms into is a question of compliance pathways and transition mm. policies. And all of that is what you know the Paris Agreement is ultimately wanting to you know, nudge states into. And this, in a way, is kind of, you know, would help, we, we believe would seriously help to corral that into existence. So, so if I understand that correctly, that would so it, it would sort of play a kind of backstop role, which is missing at the moment, right, from the internet international infrastructure, that there would be a sort of still an expectation of race to the top, innovation, but that for those that fell materially behind in a demonstrable way from where they needed to be, there would be this backstop where there would be this other route to try to get them to move. What do you think about that, Christiana? Well, I, I, I'm interested that you interpret it as a backstop. Um, I, I was thinking the, the Paris Agreement sort of sets a direction, right? A long-term direction. And, um, and we're moving in that direction pathetically slowly. <laughs> pathetically slowly. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, and so what I was seeing, Jojo, but, you know, let, let me know if this works for you, is... Well, what if we think about the system as um, a, a long canoe with the direction that we've all agreed to and the canoe needs to speed up and what ecocide, if it is agreed in the ICC, would do is it would be an additional oar that accelerates the canoe down the direction of the flow of the river that we know we have to go, but it's just too slow. So is it an accelerator? Just, you know, we talked about it before as being a deterrent, which is a negative part of it. I'm wondering mm -hmm. if it, at the same time, can it be an accelerator of action? Do you see it as that? Or do you see it only as a deterrent or a, a backstop in, in Tom's words? No, I mean, I, we actually kind of see it as both, but but certainly we believe it will be an accelerator because, in fact, one of the things we get asked most often is, you know, who you know who would you want to see in the dock under this law and stuff? And, you know, actually, I, I came into this work from on-the-ground activism, and if you'd asked me a few years ago, I probably would have given you a list of names. But actually, what we... <laughs> a long <laughs> list of names. <laughs> but actually, where we are now is very much not that place. My answer to that is we don't want to see anyone in the dock. And we don't want to see anyone in the dock because what we want to see is the, the whole kind of change of direction um, of corporate practice to actually take this into account. It's, it's a kind of, it's if you like, I mean, I know, um, you know, Nigel Topping talks about, you know, we, we, in the whole race to zero context, talks about, you know, the players and how we play the game and so on. And actually what we're looking at with Ecoside is actually changing the rules of the game so that you're looking at the a new addition to the bottom line. So instead of, you know, looking at what you can do with your business that will not kill anybody, because obviously that's where we draw the moral line, you know, that's a, that's a criminal law, you know, how can we engage in what we do with our business without killing anybody and without seriously destroying ecosystems? It's like an additional kind of moral caveat that has to go in there because of the criminal law. Um, and so, yes, we do absolutely see that as, a, as, as an accelerator, because the other thing is that, you know, in a way, you know, the climate crisis is the symptom of which decades of ecocide are the cause. 
Right. Mm. right, right, right. I totally get it, Jojo. So you mentioned the mentioned corporations, which is kind of my thing because I, I sort of <laughs> am in a strange relationship with corporations. I think they're wonderful and they frighten me and all the rest of it. But I think one of the problems with this is, 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 is you may not know this, but uh, uh, Tom and I have a, a fairly large chemicals factory and we, we sometimes go down to the river and throw chemicals in the, in the river. Um, luckily, we haven't been caught by the police yet. But if we get caught by the police once, I think we'll probably you know go to court and we might get a fine. But if we go to the, if we keep getting caught by the police night after after night throwing chemicals in the river i think they're going to eventually they're going to send tom and i to prison but the funny thing is if we were a company i believe we would be able to continually dump in the river dump in the river dump in the river and as long as we continue to pay the fines there isn't um a prison system. I remember I saw a banner once saying, I'll believe, uh, I'll believe corporations are humans when Texas hangs one of them or, or you know, Texas executes one of them. So my, my real question is, do you think Ecoside can help to pierce the corporate veil, introduce these notions of personal liability? Because it strikes me that, you know, we all know massive damage is being done to our ecosystem. We all know that cannot be in humanity's interest. We're smashing up the life support system that keeps us all alive. And yet there doesn't appear to be a legal basis for um, stopping that. Have you found one? Well, we believe that ecocide law has the potential to do this, perhaps where things have failed in the past, um, in the sense that because it, it's, it acts as a, as a sort of personal deterrent to those in, in key positions, they don't get to sort of hide behind the corporate veil in the way that that, that, that currently works, as you say, where corporations just end, simply end up with fines. And, and the way that corporations treat sort of environmental regulation, which is where most of environmental law sits, of course, there are environmental crimes as well. But um, most most environmental law is regulatory and corporations sort of treat it as an externality, you know, to the, the damage to nature. It's something to be sort of got around to sort of pay your lawyers to kind of work out how to move around those, those regulations and perhaps operate in other jurisdictions if they're less restrictive and all of that sort of thing. Um, but as soon as you introduce um, a criminal law and somebody's personal freedom is potentially on the line it does make a difference it does make a difference and in fact there was there was a study i believe that was done in colorado university a few years ago i must look up the actual details of it but one of the things that they found was that um if you change regulation, you change budgeting at the corporate level. Yeah. Whereas if you change mm. criminal law, you start to change behaviour. So there's something about... Remo- I'll, I'll go for behaviour <laughs> over budgeting every time. <laughs> yeah, so it's about the impunity. It's about removing the impunity. The impunity. Thank you for the phrase that you've just used, the, the two of you, Paul and Jojo. Removing impunity. I yeah. really want to underline that. That is, you, you, if that is what we're pursuing here whether anybody goes to the dock or not, it is actually removing that sense or even the perception of impunity. I can do this and there's no consequence. That is just such a, yeah, there you go. (laughs) Removing impunity. So can I bring us, bring you Jojo to our last question that we do like to ask all of our guests. And that is, when you look at the state of the world, what's going on, and when you think of the work yourself and many others are doing in these related fields, are you more outraged or more optimistic? Where do you situate yourself on that scale? I'm fundamentally optimistic, but I would also say that um, I come from the world of activism um, and I don't know a single activist that hasn't entered that arena because of outrage. And I, th- <laughs> and I think that that is, I think outrage is the starting point, but optimism is what's actually going to drive us forward because I don't believe you can bring a solution into existence unless you believe it's possible. And that's a fundamentally optimistic position. Mm, no, that's very, very true. You've got to have a dream or you can't have a dream come true. Exactly. Jojo, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Great to talk to you and and good luck with your inspiring work. It's been a pleasure. Lovely to see you. Thank you you so much. Bye. Bye. So how interesting to get to sit with Jojo Meta, hear about Ecoside, obviously a concept that has really built momentum in the world and, you know, one that so many people feel a deep sense of attraction to and a sense that this is the kind of justice we've been seeking on this destruction of the natural habitat of the planet. What did you guys take from that conversation? Well, speaking of natural habitat, can we just pause for a second um, and address my little capuchin friend? Um, Because... (laughs) I mean, these, these, 
these capuchins or white face are really pretty amazing. They are very aggressive. Um, <laughs> they will they forage all day long from early morning to late at night. They are omnivorous and they are completely fearless. They will come up to astonishing closeness to you and try to steal anything that looks like appetizing food. Why my little microphone, maybe it was because it was a small microphone as opposed to my usual larger microphone, was so enticing to them. I have no idea. But honestly, they're actually a little bit scary. And they like to scare you, so they will, you know, do these funny little noise where all their teeth show, which is not that they're smiling at you. They're actually <laughs> wanting to intimidate you. They're really pretty scary, but... um. No, yes. I'm totally. I'm totally seeing it from the side. I, of, I did survive. I did survive, and my microphone it. survived. <laughs> I'm totally seeing it from the point of view of the monkey. It's like looking at you, and you're looking at this microphone. It's kind of like, well, look, if she's not going to eat it, I'm going to eat it. You know what I mean? You exactly. Can there, like, make your mind up. Like, I'm hungry. You know, you don't want it. Fine. Looks good. Big, big blackberry. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, I mean, amazing creatures. What? But what do you take from Jojo Meta as well? Yes. Let's get back to task here. <laughs> Well, I mean, I'm I'm incredibly interested in any notion of using law, which is a very peculiar thing in our society. But I mean, we clearly all depend on it. Societies are almost defined by laws. But considering how laws might evolve, um, better for us to uh, consider, you know, the wholesale destruction of habitats. I mean, that's that's an entirely legitimate avenue for law. And I think that uh, I, I have no idea. I'm, I'm not a legal expert. Um, the degree to which it, it, it might be um, uh, brought into effect in the near future to cause, you know, lawsuits. But I think that the demonstration effect of people considering this and using this kind of language may dissuade people from rash actions that significantly undermine the environment. So I, I must admit that um, when we started. Um, I was a little bit, hmm, a little bit doubtful about this strategy. First, because I thought, why go through the ICC, as I mentioned to her? Um, the International Court of uh, Criminal Court can only pursue individuals, right? Uh, mm -hmm. It cannot yeah. go to anything. It cannot judge a state. Um, and I just thought that's really an interesting approach where, you have another approach, which is the international court. So why didn't they go there? Um, and my other, not concern, but my other question was, well, but if you try to uh, bring evidence against a CEO, for example, Paul Dickinson has spent years lecturing us about how all CEOs actually have all kinds of insurance that protects them from such um, legal attacks. And so I would say, well, in that case, they're immune to anything that the ICC could do. And my third, my third concern was they are so swamped. The ICC, you know, moves very slowly and they are completely swamped and it can take years to bring any case. And do we have the years? So all of those, all of that was going through my mind. Now, during and after the conversation with her, I actually moved over to see it from her perspective because I think it is actually two things really hit me. One, as she explains, that once the fifth crime, let's remember that five, four crimes are already recognized by the ICC, but once if this is recognized as the fifth crime, then any member states that ratify that would have to include it in their own domestic legislation. That's pretty interesting. And the second bit that I thought was very interesting was her point about the end of impunity. Because once this is recognized as an international crime, yeah. well, then it really is, I would hope, a very strong deterrent. It's not a guarantee, as we know, uh, because it will continue to happen, hopefully at a lower scale. But it does serve as a deterrent because who wants to publicly be associated with something that has been recognized as an international crime? So, um, so I thought, you know, that it's, it's an interesting tactic or strategy that they're using to um, criminalize 
eco side. So, so I agree with everything you just said there. And the other thing I would add is there are a million reasons why this might not happen. And everybody she talks to must be aware of them, right? How do you define it? How do you get it adopted? How does it translate into international law? And that kind of like onslaught, and we know that, right, from, from Paris and other things we've done in our lives, is very exhausting. And I was really impressed at how she sort of just absorbed that and said, yes, it's difficult. There's a series of problems, but here's our opportunity. We've got to try and do it. And she was, yep. she remained very big tent, very flexible, very sort of like circumspect about the role that this could play vis-a-vis -vis other things. She wasn't Pollyannaish about her chances, but she saw that she had a shot. I thought that, um, I thought, I think the idea if it were to be implemented, and I don't really feel justified, you know, qualified to comment on whether it will be or not, but it should be, and she's got a shot, and she's taking that shot, and good on her, because that's what good we need. We need people yep. willing to take a chance on those sorts of things if we're going to make progress. So thank God for Jojo Meta. Yes, seriously. It strikes me that uh, with what Jojo's trying to do, we have a David and Goliath situation. And uh, I think she is very aware of the Goliath forces against her. And that doesn't stop her, as Tom has said. And, you know, we're actually at the point where we need many, many Davids who are <laughs> not intimidated by Goliath yeah. and who, you know, have the courage and the stamina and the determination to stand up for what they believe in, for what they know is right, and in particular for what needs to be changed. So kudos to her. Um, and, and I guess a, a shout out to so many other Davids and Davidinas, uh, who, um, <laughs> who are out there standing up against very, very difficult forces because we know it's the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. As Anita Ruddick used to say, if you don't think something small can affect something big, spend a night in a sleeping bag with a mosquito. <laughs> <laughs> But here's the thing, Christiana, Christiana yes. has actually nailed something extremely important. This notion of directors and officers liability insurance. And mm. you know what, these policies, what if they said, you know, if you pour a million tons of the wrong thing into river, you're not covered. What if those policies said, if you clear cut, you know, a million acres of the forest, you're not covered. It yeah. could be that the people writing those insurance policies have the power to protect the entire global ecosystem. So that's something to think about, Christian. Yeah. So, I mean, so would you say that would be step number two? You would have to recognize ecocide as an international crime. And then insurance companies might have to recognize and make exceptions for those people who incur in that crime, they wouldn't be covered. Is that what you're saying as a step It could go sooner. Honestly, we, to be honest, you know, why not now? If they're, you know, there's a, there's a few companies who could look them up. If they, if they are providing directors and officers liability insurance, even today, even tomorrow, they could put out in a renewal notice, if you're cutting a million acres of clear forest, if you're polluting oceans or rivers or whatever in some significant way, you may not be covered. That's all they've got to say. And I think it could change the world. Yeah. It would be and, huge. And, and of course, that would be amazing. I mean, of course, if it wasn't actually a law, that void could be filled by new players who would still provide the insurance, right? But if it was introduced at the ICC... Done deal. I mean, you can't get insurance against committing genocide, can you? No, but, I, but I, no, in all seriousness, I mean, I think I think people who run big companies they they don't necessarily know what's happening. The companies are so big, but they yeah. kind of think, well, I'm kind of protected. But all the insurance has got to say is, well, you may not be protected, and they may suddenly take much more interest in what's happening. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, we got our hmm. <laughs> hmm. I like a I like a hmm. 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 Right. Anything else to say before we move on to our musical guest of the week? Well, thank you to our listeners for wonderful reviews, and we're going to read some more out next week. Much appreciated. Number two this week. Much appreciated. We've gone on Absolutely. too long, and Clay's going to have to actually go to bed and look after his kid and not just edit this. <laughs> right. So as ever, we bring you a piece of music this week. This week, it is from the musical artist Eliza Shaddad. Uh, she is a critically acclaimed Scottish Sudanese artist whose childhood saw her raised across seven countries. And her single Blossom is a celebration of spring and interweaves musical elements from her Sudanese heritage, characteristic strings and a jubilant traditional Sudanese call. It is spring in the Northern Hemisphere where many, although all of our listeners are. Hope you're enjoying spring. Hope you enjoy this beautiful piece of music. 
Thank you very much for joining us. And we look forward to seeing you next week. Big one. It's the Earth Summit next week. We have a big guest. Don't big miss guest. it. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. I think it's important that artists engage with climate change and inequality and other social issues because it's important that everybody engages with those things. I think it's increasingly obvious how how the impacts of lots of different things can affect people across the world from you. And if we don't really seek and strive to understand it, then how are we going to change it? We're also in the very privileged position to have a platform, however minor, um, from which to engage with people and kind of have discussions and suggest ways in which we can help others. So I think that it's, it's important to use that opportunity for, for everybody's good. Things that make me feel optimistic are seeing spring come in, having a little time and space to really enjoy the world coming into bloom and relishing how beautiful it is. Hearing about species rebounding with lower pollution levels and wildlife initiatives. And I guess looking around and seeing people enjoying nature and really connecting with it. I wrote this song after experiencing that glorious feeling when life starts to come <laughs> back to life, I guess. Um, it was after a long, cold winter and it was the first day of really warm sunshine and the plants were flowering and the flowers were blooming and everything was starting to smell nice and I just got really wrapped up in that feeling of opening up to the world again. Blossom grows on the trees where you last lay here Constant grey giving way to the blue And I am going round all day digging up the soil Turning over leaves and searching for a new But as the air begins to warm, I breathe it in And as my heart begins to swell, I think it must be spring again Tell myself I'm dreaming Oh, in order not to raise the hope I've been in hibernation for so long Now I would just like to know But as the air begins to warm I breathe it in And as my heart begins to swell, I think it must be spring again.
So there you go. Another episode of Outrage and Optimism. Blossom by Eliza Shaddad. This week, I spent too much time. And by too much time, I mean not enough. Looking up videos of her and her music. One thing that I discovered, she supported Keen on their tour last year. I saw these like iconic photos of her on her Instagram, just like her and her guitar and these like massive crowds, just like huge rooms she was playing before lockdown. And yet this tune that she recorded for us was so intimate and I'm just kind of mesmerized by her right now, as I'm sure you are too. As always, links to her music in the show notes, but I just want to mention she also has a Patreon. If you're not familiar, Patreon is the new radical way to connect with creators, artists, and musicians. I can't recommend it enough. So go familiarize yourself with Patreon and go support Eliza. If in the future we have an artist that has a Patreon, I'm going to specifically link you to it. So I, so for this episode, I've made Eliza's Patreon the first link in her section of the show notes. Go, go, go. Check it out. Thank you, Eliza. Thank you to our guest this week, Jojo Meta. It's amazing the work that Stop Ecoside is doing. And I've been having conversations all week about Ecoside with friends and family. There's ways to support the Stop Ecoside campaign, including signing a petition and becoming an earth protector. You can add that to your resume. Go to stopecoside.earth to learn more, get involved. But you know, why type it when you can click it? Head to the show notes. It's all there. Okay, before I thank our team, I did want to read one review we got this week because it's just a few words. Okay, this review is from coolgirl656, best screen name. The title is great, exclamation point. The rating is five stars and the review reads just as follows. Very informative. (laughs) I love this review. Don't get me wrong. We read every single review. We love it when you write, when you type us a paragraph because we read it. But if any of you who are listening want to leave us a single word, two word, three word, you know, five star review. Okay. If it's three words or less, I will read it in the credits. (laughs) I didn't tell anybody else on the team that I'm doing this. So this is a spur of the moment inspiration thing. (laughs) So don't let me down. Okay. Credits. Outrage and Optimism is a Global Optimism production. Global Optimism is Sarah Law, Katie Bradford, Lara Richardson, Marina Mancilia German, Sophie McDonald, Fran Newman, Sarah Thomas, Sue Reed, and John Ward. Our executive producer is Sharon Johnson, and our producer is Clay Carnell. That's me. And our hosts are Cristiana Figueres, Paul Dickinson, and Tom Rivet Karnak. Tom good to have you back. Okay, that is a wrap. Not sure you heard, but we have a big guest next week. I had the privilege of meeting him last year. Nice guy. Hit subscribe so you don't miss. We'll see you then.